Hi everyone. I um, I guess I'd like to know how many of you uh, went to the uh, recent retreat by a show of hands. Oh great, that's that's terrific. I've um, been fortunate enough to spend many retreats up at the Dharma Center and it's always a great experience. I always feel that I come through it uh, closer to my true self, tr closer to my true Buddha nature and I hope that you all have uh, had a, a similar experience. As uh, Darren touched upon, and um, I'm glad that you didn't make it your, the entire focus of your talk, the noble silence, because I had planned to talk about that. I thought, wow, if he really just goes into that, it won't leave me with, with too much. But um, I tried to quiet that part of my mind and listen to your talk. So um, noble silence is a, um, it's a great tool to enhance your Buddhist practice. It's actually, uh, it goes hand in hand with these quiet awakenings that are very common when we go up to the Dharma Center uh, on, on retreat. With noble silence, we are able to hear the birds chirping in the woods, and as Darren pointed out, we uh, have sort of a heightened, we sort of develop a heightened sense of uh, taste, not, because it's not only hearing, heightened sense of taste, of everything, everything becomes, the acuity of our senses truly, truly increases, and uh, which makes us wonder, gee, what are we doing, you know, during the other part of our, you know, the other 99% of our lives when we are just living our regular lives and we are not really in touch with, as in touch with our senses as we should uh, be. One of the um, uh, aspects of noble silence is, of course, not hearing your own voice. Uh, and uh, your own voice can, is, uh, some, some people find it very pleasant. I know some people enjoy hearing themselves talk. I don't happen to be one of those persons. I kind of recall the first time that I heard my, that I heard my voice and I, my response was, oh, you know, I've said, who, like, who is that thug? I sounded a little off. I wasn't that, that thrilled with it. But more importantly, with noble silence, you, um, silence, you, you don't hear your preparatory voice. Which is, which, which is um, another, uh, for another form of your ego. The preparatory voice becomes very active when you are having a conversation with someone. It um, starts to uh, yeah, think up a response, a rejoinder. The, the, your preparatory voice, your internal voice, it wants to be witty, it wants to be funny or hilarious or profound, sometimes it even wants to be shocking. So with, uh, with the practice of noble silence, throughout the weekend, the preparatory voice really tends to get quieter and quieter 
and, and somewhat, and, and really deflate. So um, I, I find that very beneficial, that it allows, when the preparatory voice deflates, the real you is able to come through. And you're able to really feel your true Buddha essence, your true Buddha nature. So um, at least that's, that's been my experience at retreats, that my, my real self comes through even more. And uh, this self, of course, is uh, radiant Dharmakaya Buddha. It's, it's based, based upon that. So Noble Silence is uh, a wonderful one Buddhist practice. I really appreciate that. I um, also wanted to talk about t today uh, right speech, which is on the other side of the spectrum of noble silence. Uh, right speech is part of the Eightfold Path that is laid out by the Buddha, uh, which includes, um, let's see if I remember them all, <laughs> uh, right mindfulness, right understanding, right view, um, right action, right thought, right livelihood, and right effort. I think I've gotten them, gotten them all. Um, so right speech is, um, according to the Buddha, it's supposed to be true, beneficial, inspiring, and compassionate. Um, so um, it, uh, as, as, part of, as part of our Buddhist practice, this can seem very simplistic. Okay, yes, uh, well, that means we, you know, we don't lie. We try to be inspiring. You say, hi, how are you? But it doesn't mean that at all. It, it, mean, it, um, it really relies upon using your true essential nature in your speech being true to that as a beginning. And then, then from that beginning, then making, sh making sure that what you're saying has utility, that it has benefit. This is, and um, one, of, uh, uh, I, one of the reasons why I wanted to speak about this topic is because we're, I guess, well, in say, current events, we're hearing, some, we're hearing a, lot of, a lot of negative talk. Um, I mean, a lot. I feel, I personally, I feel that bombarded by, by negativity. I, um, like last week, I had to just take a day where I did not listen to radio or TV and just to be alone with, with, my, own, with my own thoughts um, because of, of all of the neg negative talk. So um, right speech is very important to our Buddhist practice. Now, Master Sotisan sort of very conveniently packaged the um, Eightfold Path into the threefold learning, which makes it more accessible to all, I think, to all practitioners. And the threefold learning is um, right, well, is uh, wisdom, uh, which, it, which uh, relies upon facts and principles, focusing upon right questions, being aware of your environment, um, cause and effect, and um, also uh, spiritual stability, 
and spiritual stability we develop, we cultivate through meditation. And right choice and action, so right speech falls under the threefold learnings in, uh, in one Buddhist practice under uh, right, right choice in action. Um, and um, so I'm not saying that right, that right speech needs to be without conflict because uh, speech is, um, necess it, it necessarily has conflict because we engage other, it's, it's engaged with other people. It's a very good example of uh, the dependent origination uh, theory of the Buddha, that everything exists because everything else exists. Everything is very, is very interdependent. So, um, so right speech is not just you know, uh, saying banalities, and it's, uh, it, it can have conflict. And um, one, uh, one experience that I've had recently brought, really brought this to mind when uh, I spent some time with, with some relatives recently, and one of my cousins, who is my age, and she has grown sons, three of them, who are in their, uh, in their late 20s. And of course, as when her first son was born, she, you know, the first child is always the experimental child. You don't really feel confident that you know what you're doing. Um, and it's, you know, being, being a new parent, it's, it is, you know, it's very stressful. You, you're, you're, you talk about on-the-job learning. This definitely is it when you have your first child. So with her second child, she was determined to do everything right. When, um, when, when, her, when her second son was born, uh, you know, she uh, was really just providing everything that he needed. He was never hungry, he was immediately fed, never thirsty, that bottle was always at hand. He, um, you know, she would change him, you know, immediately, when he looked at a toy, she would grab it, bring it to him. And so what ended up happening <laughs> is well into his toddlerhood, before, this is the second son who was the middle child, before he went to school, like I guess sort of like a late, late toddlerhood, uh, she realized that his, speaking, his speech lagged because all of his needs had been met. <laughs> there was no conflict there. She, um, so when there was nothing organically wrong with him, it, he just, he didn't need to speak. He looked at something, it appeared. He was, he was hungry, he had food. Everything was, everything happened to him automatically because she was trying to be a very, very good mother. Uh, she felt, of course, very guilty and took steps to correct this. And his uh, speech patterns, of course, they, you know, he gained them back, but um, in order to allow him to learn how to speak, she had to allow him to suffer somewhat. That was part of it. Suffering, stress, that conflict. So right speech does have that element of suffering. And, um, but where do we find the balance between like how much suffering do we have to endure with some of the um, some of the things that we're hearing? <laughs> like what is what is appropriate? I um, 
In, a, uh, in an article in the New York Times last week, they did tackle this topic, like what to do with, uh, with um, an encounter where someone is really using very in inappropriate language and an inappropriate topic, what is the best uh, method? And the um, experts who, I guess, were psychologists, <laughs> said that the best way was to take it upon yourself and just say, personally, that's not, that topic is not right with me. I am not comfortable with, that, with hearing you speak about this group of people that way. Um, you know, and that's just me. So again, it is um, allowing your true nature also to come through. You can have that stress, you can have that conflict, and all, but, but the challenge really is bringing about your true nature into it. Um, a, um, a direct conflict was, would, not, would not really help that person very much, it, because then, then they would just sort of stop, stop listening, and you would not really have a, um, uh, a meaningful interchange. Be, um, so, uh, if you could take them, uh, pass out these little uh, flyers, it's sort of like a little map. <laughs> so, is, is it true or not true? And then if it's not true, you don't speak. Um, now, this might seem very simple, but I'll give you an example of how I use it. In, um, in my work, I work in an oncology practice where, where I speak to cancer patients you know, throughout the day. And a lot of them have very, uh, you know, will, will not be, will, are dying. They'll not be around in maybe a month or a couple of months. So it's really disingenuous for, uh, in, for our phone conversations to begin with, oh, hi, how are you? You know, it's just because I've, Obviously, I mean, you know, they're doing terribly. So that's, that would not be true for me to say. So instead I can say, how are you today? Are you having a better day than yesterday? What kind of day are you having today? I try to make it, make it relevant. Um, so um, that's like the first stop on the map. Then, is it beneficial? Is your speech beneficial? This is really, uh, personally, I find this very, um, very challenging to uh, say something, say something beneficial. I don't know if, um, you know, what complaints you have. It, it's, it's always good to at least, let's say even if you are approaching someone with a complaint, to start with something beneficial, kind of ease, will we'll, we'll, um, ease into it. So let's say if that, um, let's say, is accepted or not accepted, then, uh, then you speak. Now, um, also, I have a 16-year-old. So to say something that is accepted is something that I really have to kind of back off from a lot. And I have a lot of problem, like right there, um, wait for the right time. Like when, when will that be, <laughs> I wonder. So. Um, but this is, uh, 
I found this on the internet, and uh, I think it's a good a good roadmap for for right speech, especially especially today. And uh, this is when. when He's talking about uh, Korea's national prospects. So I think this is relevant uh, with uh, all the talk that we're hearing. Regarding the spirit of building a new state, the master said, what is foremost regarding the spirit of founding a new state is the unity of our minds. In all cases, it is in an indubitable law. United we're strong, but divided we're weak. Until we flourish, Oh, 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 united we flourish, but divided we fall. What chance do we have of establishing a perfect and robust nation through a process of founding a state, a great task that will leave its mark over numberless years, unless it is rooted initially in this unity of our minds? And then he goes on. Um, Instead of reviving private feuds and old resentments and indulging and exposing others' minor faults, a lukewarm spirit of national independ um, independence because of giving precedence to self-interest and greed, an inability to respect the sincere intent of true patriots, a lack of self-reflection regarding one's own mind, and leaving the responsibility for unity to others. If we will only ever overcome all of these hindrances, unity will naturally occur. So I kind of feel that this is very, um, very much a relevant uh, challenge for us. And these are also these are the words of the second Dharma master. Uh, he says, "Unity of mind means one-pointedness, produced by redirecting toward the original nature, the, the distracted thoughts that are scattered like numerous branches, branches and leaves." Um, so, what I take from that is that the unity of the mind is a is um, interdependent. When we accept that, it's also an um, it also relies upon our experience as one Buddhist with relying upon the uh, the. the the Dharmakaya and our, our Dharma teachings. I would like you to also, uh, I guess, understand the difference between speaking and the reading that I just did. When I was reading, I was just sort of going through, but standing up here speaking, I am uh, trying to deepen my practice as a Wan Buddhist, trying to um, allow you all into my heart and um, I am trying to really, really live in this and experience this present moment in, in speaking. And I really, I thank you so much all. I'm very grateful that you all listen to me and thank you for um, being patient with me. I hope that you will uh, think about right speech and how to um, bring it to your own lives and how right speech will really help you come through.